Amen. Amen. None of us never graduate beyond the truth of that song. I need thee every hour. It's, it is good to be here at uh, Canaan Baptist Church, and it is a blessing. Uh, sometimes people ask me, are you a pastor or an evangelist? And I just say, yes. Now, where the Lord has me right now, um, I was ordained back in August of 2020, and so I currently, when I'm in town, I serve on staff at Stone Ridge Baptist Church in Bloomington, Indiana, and then just as the Lord opens up opportunities to preach, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity just to take the Word of God. The Word of God sets us free. It's the truth that sets us free, and so I've needed the truth of God to set me free. And so I trust tonight will just be an encouragement to us as we consider just helping hurting people. And the fact that you're here tonight encourages me just to know there's a, a church and the Lord is raising up churches with a heartbeat uh, to help people. And I know that's the heartbeat here. I've really been uh, challenged uh, by uh, some of Pastor Ingram's messages. I've personally been challenged and just to sense the heartbeat that there is a desire, a recognition of the need out there, and even sometimes in our own midst, but then a desire uh, to be able to be the, the vessels, the channels that God can use uh, to minister His truth uh, to other people. May the Lord help us continue on that journey, and tonight I just want to draw our attention to a short verse. It's Galatians chapter 6, Galatians uh, chapter 6, it's a familiar verse probably to most of you, and I really love this uh, passage because in a nutshell, so succinctly, it just summarizes exactly what this conference is about, uh, how to restore uh, people, and I love the local church, it's God's program for today, don't you believe that? Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 12, it says God gives gifts to the local church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so the local church is God's program, it's God's plan, and I'm just grateful to partner uh, with Canaan Baptist Church uh, for this uh, time we have together. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, I'll read the text. It says this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I've just simply titled the message tonight, Spiritual EMTs. Spiritual EMTs. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. I need you tonight as we take the word of God. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine truth to us tonight. And Lord, there's people uh, far beyond this building that are represented here in the sense of our, our connections with people. And so, Lord, I pray that you take the truths tonight and just help us to know how to uh, restore uh, those you've put in contact with us. And so we pray all of this, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in everything that's done tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The year was 1945. It was May 1945, and as the uh, Germans were surrendering to the Allied forces, 
uh, the Japanese weren't quite ready to give up. In fact, they were uh, viciously, fiercely uh, defending the last remaining barrier to uh, an Allied invasion of their homeland. That barrier was, of course, Okinawa. Um, and specifically, uh, what's called the Maeda Escarpment. And what this was is the soldiers referred to it as Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, some of you perhaps have heard uh, this story, but what this ridge was, it was literally a 400-foot cliff, um, a pretty imposing uh, resistance uh, that the Japanese had. They had dug tunnels and trenches on top of this uh, huge uh, cliff. And so the Allies for days were trying to advance and literally scale, get to the top of that ridge, Hacksaw Ridge. Well, it was May 2nd, and the American troops were actually finally able to break through. Uh, they used a, a series of uh, cords and ropes, um, nets, to actually scale the last 35 feet of that 400-foot cliff. Uh, you see the top 35 foot actually uh, extended out, creating an overhang, so it's quite the feat to just get to the top of the, of the, the ridge. Well, the American forces went to battle on the ridge. They had secured the ridge, but they were not expecting what happened just a few days later, a massive counterattack from the Japanese. And the officers immediately recognized the danger and ordered all of the soldiers back down that hill, that 400-foot rock cliff. And all of the soldiers, sure enough, in obedience to the officer's command, retreated, all except for one man. His name was Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss. He was a 26-year-old medic. And as he looked out there at the casualties, he realized something had to be done. Two-thirds of the American forces had been lost. And the one-third had, of course, gone down, uh, back down the ridge. But Desmond Doss realized something has to be done. There are literally hundreds of mortally, tragically, seriously wounded soldiers. And so Desmond Doss did the unthinkable. Without a gun, just his meager medical supplies, spent the next 12 hours crawling up close to enemy lines, sometimes as close where he could hear Japanese soldiers whispering, and knelt down one at a time, would tend the wounds, throw, pick up the soldier, throw him over his shoulder, carry him back, and through a series of ropes, lower the soldier down the cliff. He did that for one soldier, two, three, 10, 20, until after 12 hours, unstopped 75 soldiers. Desmond Doss, one by one, picked up, carried over his shoulder, and helped lower down the cliff. So I recently came across that story. I was impacted with the fact that God is calling you and I to be spiritual EMTs, to be spiritual medics in a world of chaos, in a world of carnage. 
in a world of casualties. And we see casualties all around us, do we not? Our families, our homes, our marriages, parent-child relationships, even personal lives where people are feeling the effects of carnage because of sin. And you, Galatians chapter 6 is a powerful verse because it actually places the responsibility for those caught in this, as the text says, people who are overtaken in a fault. They're caught in the carnage of sin. It's you and I that have the responsibility to go in as spiritual EMTs and restore. We're not the healer, but Jesus Christ is the healer. And I'm thankful for that because we can point people to Jesus who is the healer of the brokenhearted. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus succinctly pulls out a, a quote, a prophecy from Isaiah that summarizes His earthly ministry. It says, I am come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. That mission was not just Jesus' mission. That mission is our mission here today. And I like to think of the local church as God's hands and feet to fulfill that mission, healing the brokenhearted and setting captives free. Galatians chapter 6, there's a simple outline here, and I do want to just focus on this specific text so we talk about recovery, as we talk about restoration, it really is the essence of discipleship. I've just referred to this as three M's of discipleship. Three M's of discipleship. Number one, notice the mandate for discipleship. The mandate for discipleship, and we see this in one imperative in Galatians chapter 6. And you probably notice what that imperative is. Let's just read it. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, what's the next word? Restore. And that's a command. That's an imperative. So it, it, it strikes me because it's not just a good idea. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just if you have time. No, it's actually a command. And who is it addressed to? The first word, brethren. So if you're saved tonight, you and I have this injunction, this command to restore. It's a non-optional command from the very hand of God. And it's certainly a sobering command. I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 28. We're familiar with the Great Commission, but honestly, the Great Commission is all about discipleship. It's a discipleship mandate. Going beyond just seeing people saved to what Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. How is discipleship illustrated throughout the Bible? Is it illustrated throughout the Bible? And how so? Specifically the New Testament. I love the different examples where we see discipleship actually played out that gives us a picture of what it means for you and I to reach into the life of someone else and be that channel of restoration to be involved in discipleship. I think of Jesus. 
Jesus, of course, the ultimate example of discipleship as he gathered a group of 12 men around him. What did Jesus do as he's going through the routines of life, going through the busyness of ministry? Jesus, you find him always using opportunities to teach, to talk to his disciples. I'm thinking of one time in particular, he's on a, the ship um, uh, going across the Sea of Galilee, he's there with his disciples, and he uses it as a teaching opportunity, a teaching moment. And it says, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he uses that boat ride just in transit, the normal course of life to teach. I'm thinking of the time when uh, they're at the temple grounds, Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus looks at a fig tree, points at the fig tree, and teaches a lesson to his disciples about faith from the fig tree. I'm thinking about a time when Jesus is again with his disciples and he, he calls a child over to him and he puts the child in the middle of them and teaches them lessons of humility. Jesus is always investing in people. He's always, even with the 5,000, instead of sending them away, he's, he's investing Jesus, of course, is our example. As we think of other uh, men in the New Testament, I think of Barnabas, an excellent example of someone who poured his life into other people, someone who had a heart for people. Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas? Of course, his name means son of consolation. And Barnabas, uh, remember, he was the guy that took Saul under his wing. And when all the apostles there in Jerusalem, they're like, wow, Saul, I don't know. I don't think we can trust him. I mean, you know what Saul has done. He could just be playing another one of these tricks to try to deceive us, get us close to him. And then he's going to turn on us. And yet it was Barnabas that was willing to tarnish his reputation with the other disciples to actually identify with an unpopular man. Put his arm around him as it were and say, here, Paul, Saul, at this point, let me introduce you. I'm thinking of Barnabas on another point with John Mark. Remember where John Mark was um, with Paul and Barnabas later on in the second missionary journey, the first missionary journey, John Mark went with him. And then for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't specifically say, but John Mark actually walks away. And I don't know what Paul was thinking, but basically he says, I'm not interested in taking John Mark with us on the second missionary journey. But who was it that said, no, I'm interested in him? It was Barnabas. And Paul later says, wow, John Mark, he is profitable for me in the ministry. I think of another example. There's, there's so many examples we could look at through Scripture of discipleship. Another one is, the, of course, the Apostle Paul. So many times the Apostle Paul is taking people with him in a very deliberate, intentional, intentional and individual kind of way. I think of Paul with Timothy. So Timothy likely was saved on Paul's first missionary journey. But then when Paul comes around on the second missionary journey, what does Paul do? He takes Timothy along. He takes Timothy with him. And then not only this, 
Paul, of course, is Timothy's mentor, but then he writes two books, letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, to literally invest, to mentor, to challenge Timothy. And then I think of Paul and Titus. Paul refers to him as my own son in the faith. And he includes Titus with him at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He's taking someone with him. He's intentionally investing in someone else. This example of, of discipleship we see all throughout Scripture. So we think about this mandate. We, you and I, today, 21st century America, have a responsibility to reach in to people's lives to restore. Well, notice the context of this restoration, this command to restore. It's given in a specific context. It's in that first phrase, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. What does it mean, brethren, if a man has been overtaken in a fault? The word overtaken literally means surprised. I don't know how you read that, but when I first read that, that, little, that, that reads a little bit differently than I would expect. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes I think of sin, I think absolutely, if you sin, you know what you're doing. You give in to sin because you know you want to sin. You give in to sin um, of your own personal choice. And that is true. But this takes a little bit different angle on it and gives with the word surprised. A man who is surprised in a fault. What's he talking about? Someone who's surprised in a fault. He's not negating personal responsibility. Uh, he's certainly not um, going after, like some people would say, oh, Satan made me do it. Okay, he's not going down that avenue. But what I believe he's doing is he's highlighting the deceptive nature of Satan's trap. The church I, I work on staff at Stone Ridge Baptist Church, my home church, um, we were having a, a staff meeting. This was about a year ago, and we heard some unusual noises that wasn't supposed to be happening. We have a basement, but no one was in the basement. But we heard noises coming from, from underneath. Like, what could this be? Well, we went downstairs. Sure enough, no one's down in the basement. It was an animal there in uh, the crawl space, kind of in that space between um, uh, part of, part of the, the, the church is uh, under basement, part of it isn't. So there's a crawl space, and there had gotten a, a raccoon under there. And so what we did was actually we had a box trap, and we put some, fixed up a nice uh, hot dog sandwich, put some ketchup on it, fixed them up real nice, put it at the end of that uh, box trap, and then waited. You know what we found the next day? Sure enough, there he was. His nose had led him to food and thought this was the best meal that I could ever want. And he steps over that spring, and there he is. He's caught. Well, we caught one, not just one. We ended up catching a whole family, about six by the time it was all done. But that... Uh, picture is a good picture of the way Satan is with us. He sets a trap, sets a snare. 
And a lot of times as we go into that, that trap, we're not anticipating the consequences of that decision. We're just, when we sin, we're walking in our flesh, under the impulses of our flesh. We're just following our nose like that, that animal who, I want food, right? And when we give in and we're walking in the flesh, all of a sudden we find ourselves in the trap. Surprised overtaken. I think that's what Paul's getting at here is Satan is so deceptive that he just thinks following your nose isn't the problem. Getting stuck in the trap is the problem. The problem is not so much getting stuck in the trap. The problem is walking in the flesh yielding to our impulses ahead of time. That's revolutionary when we understand what Paul is saying. If a man be overtaken in a fault, there's a saying my mom uh, quoted often as a real help. Says sin. I probably needed it. And it said um, the quote was, uh, "Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll cost you more than you wanted to pay, and it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay." That's every time. Every time. That's what sin does. That's what Satan does. He paints it up very glittery and. You've got to have this. If you don't have it, you're missing out. And yet, we give in, and then we wonder why all the consequences. We wonder why we're bound. We wonder why we're in the trap. We wonder why we're experiencing so much carnage. We, we wonder why we're experiencing so many relationship conflicts. And you realize that raccoon needs help getting out of that box trap. He can't get out himself. There's people that have given in to sin, yielding to the flesh. By the way, all of us have. We all need God's grace. But there's sometimes when we're in the trap and we need help getting out. I think that's what Paul is getting at. God through writing under, Paul writing under inspiration of God, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. I love that word, restore. It's a powerful word. It's a picturesque word. It literally means to mend. To mend. It's the same word that was used when uh, James and John was out uh, fishing and Jesus called them, follow me and I will make you a fishers of men. Where did Jesus find his disciples? They were out in a boat and they were, the Bible says, mending their nets. Now, how many of you are fishermen? Okay, any fishermen in the room? Okay, yes, sir. Okay, a few. Very good, very good. So fish, fishing today is a lot different than back then, right? Um, they did it for a living. It was how they uh, survived for, for those who were professional uh, fishermen. And they would often use these large nets and um, throw those nets over the side of the boat and catch a whole host of fish. We're familiar with that kind of imagery. So that's the picture here. They're sitting perhaps at the, on the shore taking valuable time to mend. Why are they mending their net? 
so they can catch a fig. That's exactly right. Because what, what are we talking? You know, there's a hole there. Their nets are not going to be as effective if they don't mend the net. So this idea of restoring someone who is in the trap, so, someone who's been taken captive by Satan at his will, someone who is caught in the snare of the devil. You and I restoring. It involves bringing them back to a place of usefulness. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose of you and I investing and reaching in because God has a bigger vision and just today, He wants to use that person to actually accomplish great things for His cause. Restore. That's the mandate. Number two, the messengers. Number two, the messengers. You which are spiritual. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. What does that mean? Ye which are spiritual. And how do I know if I'm spiritual? Because God narrows it down to a specific group of people. Okay, brethren, that's all believers. But then He narrows it down, ye which are spiritual. What is Paul not saying? Well, he's certainly not saying ye which are spiritual. Sometimes they think, well, that's got to be people who are in full-time ministry. Or that's got to be, you know, people with a suit and tie on. That's spiritual. Or that's got to be the pastor. Or that's got to be a church leader. Is that what he's talking about? You which are spiritual? It's possible to wear a suit and tie and be full of dead men's bones on the inside. That's what Paul rebuked the Pharisees for. God's concerned about the inside and the outside. The Pharisees were just concerned about the outside. So you can be in a position of leadership. You can be, have all the right standards and not be in the place to restore. Right. Ye which are spiritual. Perhaps you think, well, those who are spiritual, well, those, those are people who, you know, have had a, a relatively clean past. You know, if you look at my past, I mean, it's... Wow, I wouldn't even want everyone to know everything that's happened in my past. It's so, such a sordid past. And wow, I really don't think I would qualify in that, in that uh, description because of my past experiences. That's not what he's saying. You which are spiritual, I'm thankful for men like John Newton. You know the story of Amazing Grace. John Newton, a wretched, depraved sea captain, slave ship captain. Got as low as low could get. In fact, um, let me see if I can. He, here's what John Newton said. He says, I've sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. If you know anything about John Newton, he was a wicked, debauched, depraved, immoral blasphemous sailor and God changed him Amen. through the power of the gospel of course that the a storm was was coming and in that moment John had done something that he had not done in years and he actually prayed to God Lord have mercy and is that moment 
God used it as a turning point, a conversion for John Newton. And God used John Newton to actually go on and pastor a church in Olney, England. In fact, uh, my parents were there at, uh, in England recently and was able to see the church um, that he pastored in. See the testimony where God's grace transforms a man with a sordid past. That's powerful. And he writes, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Aren't you thankful for God's amazing grace? And he wants to take people like that, not only to change them, but to use them to restore other people. Ye which are spiritual. So what does it mean, ye which are spiritual? And how do I know if I fit in that classification? Well, the text actually gives us the answer. It's back in chapter 5. You know the context. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it goes on to describe this warfare between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the Spirit being, being contrary the one to the other and the importance of walking in the Spirit and not walking after the flesh and how the flesh manifests itself. And then, of course, contrasting that with the fruit of the Spirit. He which are spiritual, the idea is those who know what it means to walk in the Spirit. Do you know what it means to walk in the Spirit? I'm not just talking to intellectual knowledge. We've heard a lot of preaching, no doubt. Good preaching. But it's one thing to know what walking in the Spirit is, and it's another thing to actually live it. Where it's that continual dependence and communion and obedience to the still, small voice of the Spirit. We get so used to just turning down the knob, as it were, on the voice of the Spirit. Disobeying the promptings of the Spirit. Whenever we do that, we, we show we're walking after the flesh. And we actually disqualify ourselves from fulfilling this responsibility. You which are spiritual, I, this is no surprise, but I've learned this, that I can only help someone to the degree I'm actively cooperating with the Holy Spirit of God myself. You cannot help someone else beyond where you are willing to go. Ye which are spiritual, those who have learned the truth of Romans 8, 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Are you experiencing that kind of victory on a regular moment-by-moment basis in your eyes, what you look at, and your thoughts, what you think about, your attitudes? The power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that quickens us, that actually lives through our mortal flesh, through our eyes, through our hands, through our feet to actually accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And in that place, 
we're able to reach into other people's lives. The messengers, the messengers. And then number two, let's look at the means, the means. Number three, so we looked at the mandate, the messengers, and now the means. Middle part of verse six, restore such and one. Can we all say that next phrase together? In the spirit of meekness. Considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. Very quickly, what does it mean in the spirit of meekness? It's not just what we do, it's the means, how we do it. That makes all the difference. Sometimes it's easy for us to see issues, okay? Wow, I've got to fix that issue, right? Mm -hmm. Somehow miss the spirit of meekness. Restore men, bring back to a place of usefulness in the spirit of meekness. What is this referring to? I think two words specifically come to my mind. Meekness, number one is humility. That's where Jesus says, take my yoke upon me, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Meekness is not weakness. Uh, Moses was the meekest man of all the earth. And can you imagine the physical strength, the stamina he had to lead two million plus people through the wilderness? Uh, He was not weak, but his strength under the Spirit's control. Humility. Also highlights the fact, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Considering yourself. It's not a better than thou proud, oh, okay, you know, this is where the Lord's brought me, and so now let me help you. No. Considering myself, I could be right there overnight. The second word I want to highlight from this in the spirit of meekness. I see the word compassion. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Compassion. Compassion. I'm grateful for those who have reached into my life. I'm grateful for the compassion of people. Certainly grateful for God's love, His mercy, His compassion, but I'm grateful for how God has used people to show compassion. I can say here, standing before you tonight, that I would not be here tonight if it wasn't for specific people extending compassion. I'm sure many of you that could say the same thing. Look back to specific people and specific instances in your life. People God used. Of course, it all goes back to God's compassion, His love. We're able to be the channels of God's love and we experience the love that He has for us and we're able to be a channel of that to other people. I was just meditating even last night on 
Jesus' compassion. And there's three specific things I want to share as we close in regards to Jesus' compassion. Three, you may call them illustrations. One is when a rich young ruler came to Jesus. This rich young ruler had everything going for him. He was rich, he was young, and he was popular. He was a leader. And no doubt Jesus could see right through this man's heart into his motive. And instead of Jesus saying... Rich young ruler, would you get with the program and stop living for today? Would you stop living for the temporal? No, you, don't you know that there's an eternal uh, prize to live for? Jesus doesn't say that. It says Jesus beholding him loved him. Of course, Jesus' love just aptly pictured in the story of the prodigal son. Jesus is that father with his welcoming arms ready, eager, eager for the wayward son to come back to him. He's not uh, standing over someone with a club. No, he's with his open arms. And I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 55. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Yet let the wicked man uh, forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. That's our Father. That's the love. That's the compassion of a Father. When we disobey, when we grieve His Holy Spirit over and over and over and over again, He extends the offer of, humil- of repentance. If you turn to Me, if you return, if you come back to Me, I'm here. Amen. Last illustration. And several could be given, but Jesus' compassion. Remember Peter? Yeah, Peter, he was the man that always stuck his foot in his mouth. Yeah, he was the one that said, Yeah, Jesus, I'll never deny you. All these guys, they'll deny you, but not me. Bless God, I'm with you to the very end. And yet, just a few hours later, Jesus is there in Caiaphas' house. And people are buffeting Him. They're slapping Him. They're falsely accusing Him. Peter's in the courtyard. Denying Jesus. And all of the intensity that is happening in Caiaphas' house, the animosity, the hatred, the physical abuse that Jesus is going through in that moment, what Jesus does amazes me. He knows exactly what has just happened after that third denial. 
And Jesus turns. And looks at Peter. Can you imagine what those, what that look would have communicated? It was enough to break him. Not a word, but a look. Well, Peter, three days later, Jesus arrives back from the dead and Peter comes and runs to the tomb and Jesus isn't there. But Jesus makes a special appointment to meet with Peter. In fact, before Jesus ever meets with the twelve disciples, the other disciples, he meets with Peter. He has a secret, special meeting with Peter. He's interested. He wants to know what's going on in Peter's heart. He wants to perhaps another opportunity to express his love for Peter. And then Peter, at least eight days, probably more later, He says, I don't know, you know, I think I'm going back to fishing. I'm not sure how all this is going to work out. And who comes seeking him? Jesus comes walking on the shore looking for Peter. Children, do you have any meat? No, we've we've been toiling all night, haven't caught anything. And calls him to throw the nets on the other side. They bring up a whole host of fishes. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you really love me? Here's what Jesus says. Feed sheep. What is Jesus doing in that moment? And really, several moments leading up to that point, Jesus is communicating a spirit of love, of compassion for Peter. Because He wants Peter to go out and nourish the flock, restore other people. And Peter is forever changed. You know the story, Acts 2, God uses Peter to turn the world upside down. Galatians 6 verse 1, it's a simple verse. It's succinct, it's powerful, truths you've probably already thought through, but I trust it's an encouragement. Let's read the text again. Brethren, if a man or a woman Be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm just going to uh, turn it over to Pastor here very soon. I just want to give you an opportunity... uh, If we could just have the pianist play just a 
maybe a, a stanza of an invitation song. Perhaps there's someone in your life that the Lord has specifically put in your life. He's given you a burden for it. Their, names come, their name comes to your mind, even right now. I want to just ask two simple questions. One is, are you right now in the place to be used by God to restore? And then number two, are you available? Are you willing to be a spiritual EMT? To do the difficult, the unwanted, the, the messy task of investing in the life of that person. It's going to take time. It'll take energy. But are you willing? Would you just stand to your feet as the pianist plays?